Time, Esther Panslap, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 3 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we focus on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. The theme of Season 3 is the road to Doha. We will be exploring issues relevant to the LDCs ahead of the 5th UN Conference on the Least Developed Countries in Doha, Qatar in 2022. In the context of COP26, today's podcast is dedicated to the least developed countries. By now, the year 2021 has seen a familiar pattern of destructive impacts stemming from climate change, leading to increasingly devastating extreme weather events, including fires, cyclones, hurricanes, floods, and droughts across the world. The countries that are experiencing the gravest impacts are the world's 46 least developed countries, or LDCs. As the United Nations Capital Development Fund looks at the outcomes of the COP26, UNCDF wants to shine a light on the lack of financing to support critical climate resilience measures, including infrastructure and productive capacity. Today, we are excited to be speaking with Tafere Tesfachu, a longtime development expert with the United Nations, about the history of the LDC category and how it was created. Tess, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Esther, for having me, and thank you for this opportunity. Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what led you to the world of economic development? I'm Ethiopian by origin. I was born in a place called Maicho in Ethiopia and went to school until the age of 17 in, in Ethiopia. And then around 1975, I got a scholarship to go to the UK in England and went what they call the public school, which is a boarding school, to do my advanced level, A-levels in England, and went to university at uh, Lancaster in England again, did my first degree in economics, and then I stayed there to do my master's. And then I worked for a couple of years in Oxford, and then an opportunity arose for me to do a PhD program at the University of Sussex, the Institute of Development Studies in England, and I did that. And while I was there, when I about finished my PhD, I was given the opportunity to do consultancy work on trade issue. So I was there for about three, four months. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. I stayed there and got the opportunity to stay. And I worked at ANCTAD for just over 30 years before my retirement, the end of 2016. In brief, this is my story. And UNCTAD is the UN Agency for Trade and Development? Conference for Trade and Development. And what is its mandate? UNCTAD is the UN's uh, forum, if you like, or body uh, responsible for trade and development related issues. And the mandate actually says trade and development and interrelated issues of finance, investment, technology, and sustainable development. And it was established in 1964, mainly at the request of developing countries. In fact, the name remained United Nations Conference on Trade and Development because it was a request by developing countries to have a, a UN conference on trade and development to discuss trade issue and how it impacts 
development. In 1964, the UN organized that conference in Geneva. At that time, the number of uh, developing countries was 77. And they requested after the conference that a secretariat be established to do certain work that they have agreed should be done on trade and development related issue. And that secretariat remained with the name United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. And this was over 50 years ago, nearly 60 years ago. That's very interesting. I never knew how the group G77 at the United Nations got their name. And now you've given us that history. So thank you very much. Yeah, it's actually the group of 77, the name emerged out of the UNCTAD discussion in Geneva. And then in New York, when General Assembly was endorsing the creation of UNCTAD, the group created this G77. And although the number has gone now, the number of developing countries has gone to, I think, 134 or so. But the name G77 remained as it is, or as it was. <laughs> and for our audience, the G77 is still the name of the developing country group, as Tess has mentioned, at the UN, and that's active in negotiations to this day. So Tess, I'd like to know, it must have been quite a cultural shift to move from Ethiopia to then go to England and spend so much time in the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Yes, especially as age of 17, number one, and going also to a boarding school in the UK, the traditional ones are very different. And the Eton tradition is there, and there's really rules, regulations, the culture is very different. But I had an opportunity, and in fact, I was lucky, I should say, because in Ethiopia, the school that I went to for high school was an English school built as a contribution to Ethiopia by British Council, named after the British uh, general who was involved in liberating Sudan and, and Ethiopia during the colonial period from the Italians, in particular Eritrea and uh, Ethiopia. It was named after him and it was English school. So I was a bit familiar with uh, the English culture. And because of that, when I went to the boarding school in the UK, I, I was somewhat knowledgeable of what to expect. So that wasn't really bad. I'm glad to hear that because it sounds like quite a transition for a young person to have to make. Yeah. So if we turn back to your career, Tess, you are a member of the UN Committee on Development Policy. What is the role of that group called the CDP and how does it support the least developed countries and other developing countries? The CDP actually was uh, created as part of the UN's decision in 1971 to establish a category called least developed countries. At that time, it was felt that the newly independent developing countries were not really up to it in terms of competing internationally with other well-established developing countries or advanced countries. So it was felt that the proposal actually of UNCTAD that a special category should be created and special support should be provided until they reach uh, such point that they could graduate from this category and become sort of members of the other developing countries without necessarily needing special international support. To facilitate the criteria for establishing such a category, the General Assembly established a group of experts and a committee. Actually, at that time, it was called um, the CDP now, is Committee for Development Policy. But at that time, it was called Committee for Development Planning. 
And this committee's uh, responsibility was to identify the criteria through which this um, group of countries that are going to be in this LDC category are going to be selected. That's how it was set up. And it was set up by ECOSOC as a subsidiary body of ECOSOC. And then they came up with three criteria for selecting least developed countries. One of them is income. Uh, any of these uh, developing countries, less than $1,000 in terms of per capita income, they will be included in this uh, list. And the second category they used was countries with less than 10% manufacturing contribution to GDP. And the third one was on human development in terms of low performance of education and health and other criteria. They came up with this criteria and 25 countries were selected on the basis of these three criteria. Of course, the number has gone now. I think the latest count is 46 from 25 1971, but CDP was created partly to monitor this group of countries, LDCs, in terms of which country should be included based on criteria. And obviously, over the years, the criteria has improved. Now, uh, altogether, I think there are about 24 different criteria on different aspects, income and human asset development and also what we call economic and environmental vulnerability indicators. And the basis of that, countries that meet the criteria are allowed to join the LDC category. And the benefits of joining LDC category is that they get LDC-specific international support measures, like, for example, duty-free, quota-free market access in many countries, about 22 countries, including the major economies. You get some financial support. In terms of ODA support also, they get special concessions. The UN tries to allocate a larger proportion of technical cooperation activity for LDCs, but generally they recognize countries that need special help. And of course, when they graduate from LDC category, because they have met certain criteria, like income has gone beyond 1,200, and they've done well in terms of education and health-related indicators, they have reduced their vulnerability, then they graduate. Graduation means that they become like other developing countries and they don't, they no longer receive the special support measures. So in short, the role of CDP is to monitor this group, LDCs, and they're the ones, for example, CDP decides which country should graduate, which country should remain within LDC. And secondly, ECOSOC uses a committee as advisory body on a wide range of issues because there are 24 members in the committee and practically all of them actually are from academia. They are specialists, economists, and other fields like gender issue and social and other issues. Thank you for that comprehensive explanation, Tess. I think that's very helpful for our audience to understand both how the LDC group was created and how they are assessed by which UN entity. And of course, UNCDF itself is a special measure for LDCs. So Mm -hmm. UNCDF was created as an agency specifically to support the LDCs. So my question is, in the last 50 years, we have seen a reduction in poverty overall, yet a growth in the number of LDCs. Can you explain that seeming contradiction? Yes. As the number of countries becoming independent increase, like, for example, South Sudan, uh, Timor-Leste and others, and obviously their starting position is at a lower uh, range of development. So they were really uh, candidates to join. So that's why the number increased. In 
71, there were only, as I said, 25. But over the years, like Bangladesh, for example, joined in 1991, 92, and others as well. Although the growth performance came really in many of these countries during the 2000s. And if we look back in the 70s and 80s, in fact, the 80s is referred to as the lost decade for development because after the initial oil-related crisis in the 1970s, many countries went through difficulties, debt-related crisis, inability to be able to export, and many of them had difficulties. So it wasn't really difficult for a large number of countries, including the small island economies in the Pacific that were gaining their independence in the 80s to join the LDC category. So that's why the number increased. And so far, unfortunately, only six of them have graduated out of LDCs. Although the last decade, we've seen up to 16 countries sort of meeting the criteria for the first time. Actually, the CDP has a process, a triennial review. It reviews LDC category every three years. And countries have to meet on two consecutive reviews for them to be able to graduate. So now we have a large number meeting graduation criteria first time. And we are confident that in the coming five, six, seven years, at least within this decade, a large number of them will be meeting a second time the criteria for graduation. Because since 2000, many countries have done well. Growth was high. In Africa, it was averaging about 7 8%, including among LDCs. Countries like Bangladesh have done really well, which is a, an LDC, in terms of taking advantage of this market access, free, duty-free, quota-free market access opportunities provided by developing one a very sophisticated garment export sector, earning about 27 28 billion a year. And they have developed their pharmaceutical sector as well because in WTO, least developed countries do not have to be subject to various restrictions on intellectual property and other rules there. There is a waiver given to LDCs because they are LDCs. And some of them have taken advantage of this and they are graduating. So these are the combination of factors why I think the number increased and why also a large number of them are now ready to graduate. Thank you, Tess. That's very helpful. So what has the pandemic done to the graduation prospects of LDCs? Really, it was unfortunate for some of them because having worked hard and having improved in all these indicators, income going up, achieving growth and improvement in human asset development, what we call human asset development, which is the number of kids in schools, the number of children under five, mortality rate going down, nutrition, stunting going down. These are the indicators uh, used to measure progress in LDC. Having done well in all these areas because of this growth I talked about during the post-early 2000, um, now when they were about to (laughs) graduate or are getting ready to graduate, the COVID-19 shock came, it has disrupted everything, it has disrupted trade, lockdowns are happening everywhere, investment flows is interrupted. Uh, For many of these countries, this is really difficult because they rely on trade, for example, for income, government income, and for employment, for foreign exchange, they need to import 
essential items, including medicines and capital goods they need for production. So foreign exchange shortage increasing. The debt situation is uh, getting worse. So in that respect, it's been a major setback. And there are some evidence emerging that in a number of these uh, countries, progress made in terms of, for example, the number of girls attending schools has been increasing. But now it's shut down in some countries, three, four months, they had to shut down school. And especially in rural area and sort of poor households, the possibility that some of these girls may be just married off instead of going back to school has increased. Adult education programs were increasing and will be disrupted. So it's really a major setback. And these are also, unfortunately, countries that do not have the fiscal capacity and resources to introduce large and effective stimulus package, like, for example, the big countries have done. Unfortunately, also, the multilateral support system is weaker now than it was before. For example, you recall that during the 2008-9 financial crisis, G20 was very active. Immediately, they responded. They started supporting countries, banks, businesses. But this time, the multilateral system has been a bit weak, and the reaction has been a bit slow. Even when G20 met and granted LDCs suspension of debt payment, it was not cancellation, it's just simply suspension, which is okay because immediately the money they would have used to pay debt, interest rate on debt, they could use it for something else, but they still have to pay it. So all this combined, it has made it difficult for some of them to graduate. In fact, in the CDP meeting in February, the triennial review, uh, we found Timor Leste meeting the criteria for graduation. But because it's going through a very difficult debt crisis and uh, because the country relies on oil export and oil prices has been down for a lengthy period, we had to propose and the government accepted to postpone their graduation. The same with Myanmar because of their political uncertainties. So uh, Angola has requested postponement of graduation because oil prices are low and they have debt-related difficulties as well. So it has had a negative impact. And one trend we see when we work with LDCs is this theme of the fact that the poorest countries do very little to contribute to these international events, crises, climate change, and yet they are disproportionately affected by them and they have the fewest resources to deal with the results of them. For example, you were mentioning that vulnerability is one of the new categories that LDCs are judged on. Please tell us a little bit about climate vulnerability and how that affects LDCs disproportionately. Well, vulnerability is what actually defines LDCs in a way. In a way, they are LDCs because of the high vulnerability to external shock for a number of reasons. As I said, because they have low income, they, they rely excessively on external financial flows. So that means they are vulnerable. If this financial flow is not coming, they rely on investment. If FDI is not coming, they are vulnerable. And they are also vulnerable to environmental climate change-related damage um, effects, and they don't have the capacity to cope with that. That's the point. So vulnerability actually defines them. In a way, also, their vulnerability is structural in nature. 
actually, interestingly, you know, what COVID-19 has shown us is that all countries, in a way, are vulnerable because we've seen, for example, well, in, even in advanced economies, you've seen how even the health sector was stretched to its limit because COVID-19. But what makes the difference for LDCs is that uh, the vulnerability already there and COVID-19 just simply intensifies the economic and environmental vulnerability. And the root cause of that vulnerability is a limited development of their product capacity. It was very interesting when COVID-19, the the virus uh, outbreak uh, last year, February, and following that in, in March, WHO announcing that certain measures have to be taken, like uh, sanitary washing hands and wearing masks and hospitals using the PPEs and gowns that are protective uh, and so on. And these were the immediate difficulties these countries had and because they don't produce them. They don't have the product capacity to produce them, even simple items like face masks. And uh, the option was to import. Uh, and then another problem, Importing requires foreign exchange, and their export was going down. They don't have the foreign exchange to import. And then when the foreign exchange was provided by donors and development partners, if you remember, some countries started not exporting these items. The countries that have the product capacity to produce them decided not to export until they have enough for themselves. So this group of countries, some of them in Africa, were really caught in a dilemma. And that I'm mentioning this because that really is a clear demonstration of what being vulnerable means. When there are external shocks like that, and you don't have the productive capacity to switch suddenly into producing the medicines, the masks, and the PPEs you need, you're really extremely vulnerable. And the same with the environment. Floods happen and hurricanes happen. But there are countries that cope with it. I mean, the US, a lot of damage that happened because of environmental-related external shocks and hurricanes and so on. But this is a country that have the capacity to cope with it, both in terms of dealing with the damage, supporting people, ensuring that their income is not affected or they're not starving. But in LDCs, they don't have that kind of capacity. And that's why their vulnerability, as I was saying, is really structural in nature and what defines them as LDCs. That's an excellent comprehensive framework for us to keep in mind. So Tess, you're talking about the productive capacity and the ability to manufacture. Why is that so important for LDCs? And is that still relying on a sense that industrialization is necessary for economic development and income growth? Are there possibilities now with digital tools and new economic opportunities that LDCs could develop and become richer without necessarily industrializing in the same way that the West did? I think digitalization is here to stay, and thanks to COVID-19, now everyone has become aware that this is really an important technological development that no country can afford to ignore it. But I think it would be a mistake if the LDCs type of countries assume that just by leapfrogging to digital technology and bypassing the process of industrialization, developing a product capacity, that uh, you'll be okay. I think this will create a problem. For example, digital technology could help countries with e-commerce. This is how China is using it. This is how other countries are using it. But for e-commerce to work, you have to have a product to sell. 
Uh, otherwise, you're just simply using it to buy. So you need the product capacity to produce things. Development is about moving from low value, low productivity, or low technology production activities to higher value and higher productivity and higher technology production system. That is what is traditionally defined, I'm simplifying it, but as development. You wouldn't find a country that has managed to develop and become technologically advanced uh, and high income economy without first undergoing an industrialization process. As I indicated earlier, it's the development of product capacity that distinguishes developed from developing countries and separates those that are vulnerable from countries that have developed the resilience. Building resilience is really very important. The resilience to withstand external shocks like COVID-19 or some other external uh, crisis and organize policy response for recovery. This is another challenge LDCs are going to face now when it comes to recovery of COVID-19 and they're going to be slow because they don't have the the resources, the capacities, the institutions to organize fast recovery. It's only when countries uh, start to industrialize by expanding their product capacity that they are able to do the range of things that you would expect countries to do as they develop, which has indicators development. For example, diversify their economies, reduce poverty, add value in production and produce a wide range of products and services rather than a narrow range of products. Some LDCs rely on one or two, three products for export, while a typical developed country like Korea, if you look at their export composition, it reaches about 6,000 products. That means the product capacity is well-developed to produce a, a range of these uh, products from simple things like uh, toothpaste to, to cars and other things. As you industrialize, you create well-paying, decent jobs. And that means you reduce poverty. And, and the most human and dignified way of reducing poverty is to people's jobs so that they use their labor to, to earn income, not charity, but uh, jobs. If you have uh, product capacity, you'll be able to reduce your dependence on export of commodities, as LDCs do. You can promote technological learning. You can improve productivity. You tackle environment-related challenges through new technologies and by using resources generated from your production. You can kickstart what we call a process of structural transformation, i.e., Instead of relying only on agriculture, now we move into services and other more sophisticated, modern sectors. You reduce vulnerability, which is very critical. And in, in other words, the most effective route to reducing vulnerability and building resilience is to develop product capacity and build a strong industrial base. That's why going through this process is very essential. I think there's a tendency sometimes for countries to think they may bypass it and jump into the latest technology. But sometimes for some areas may be possible, but uh, not if you want to uplift your uh, economy. Thank you, Tess. That's a fantastic explanation for why productive capacity is such a focus for LDCs. What do you think is the potential of nature-based solutions or new types of accounting that put value on things that LDCs do have, for example, forests or undisturbed nature areas? Does that have potential to help LDCs towards their graduation and SDG goals? Yes, they do. And uh, some of them are using it. This pathway to development is not only possible, but also a sustainable way 
of developing. And if you have the comparative advantage and the endowment to utilize this sustainable way of developing, I think the, the best route and the tourism in some LDCs, a good example would be Samoa, another one will be Maldives. And they're paying attention now that the tourism that enables them to graduate is not the type that damages the environment, is an unsustainable type. But there's a lot of investment going into making tourists aware that the importance of actually the country and protecting its environment while providing this beauty they have for tourism business. And yes, I think my response would be, yeah, it is possible and it's happening. That's exciting. We're hearing more at UNCDF about things like renewable energy credits and the ability of LDCs to sell the value of protecting their nature areas as the world is more serious about dealing with climate change. Tess, what misperception about LDCs would you change if you could? The misperception that there are no entrepreneurs in LDC or entrepreneurial culture. I think this is one uh, misperception about LDCs. I would argue that there are entrepreneurs and all the informal sector that UNCDF deal with through the microfinance program, amazing entrepreneurs, innovators, except that they didn't have the opportunity to excel. So I think the, the problem in many of these economies is a policy-related problem, definitely, and the low level of development that entrepreneurs cannot take advantage. Lack of finance, poor infrastructure, low development of institutions, cumbersome regulatory and administrative rules and, and procedures. These are the ones that, that really what we call binding constraints in a disease. And as I said, low development but that capacity. Otherwise, the entrepreneurs in the private sector, which mainly consists small micro enterprises, innovators, because they have proven it year after year by surviving and under that difficult business environment. Now, if that is not skillful uh, entrepreneurship, what is? So I think I would remove that misconception. <laughs> I think that's a perfect one to highlight, Tess, because anyone who thinks that poor people are not entrepreneurial has never seen or has never visited a poor country because everybody there is hustling as hard as they can, exactly as you say, just to make it through the day and survive. So, Tess, what is your favorite SDG and why? Oh, (laughs) that is a difficult question. First of all, I should say the following. All the SDGs are very important and very essential and timely, number one. Number two. Compared to the MDGs, SDGs, a lot of thinking went into them, a lot of stakeholder discussion. MDGs focused on poverty and removing poverty without really saying how. It was all about supporting poor countries to reduce poverty, which was okay. But there's something missing. Countries are supposed to do that. The SDGs completed the story. The SDGs, I know there are 17 goals, some people say too many, but they are comprehensive and they identify not only what needs to be done, but also how to do it. It's really difficult to choose a favorite in the sense that uh, eliminating poverty, who would have problems with that? Zero hunger, good health, well-being for all, and uh, 
quality education, gender issue, clean water, all of them. But if you push me and say, okay, just identify one or two, I would go, I'm biased towards that, I guess, because of my work and background, the STG 8 and 9, decent work, economic growth, and industry, innovation, and infrastructure. And the reason is the following. At the end of the day, if you do well in these two goals, then you will have the resources, the capability, and the capacity to eliminate poverty, uh, to reduce hunger to zero, to provide good health and well-being for all your citizens, to provide good education, and to improve the quality of the standard empowerment of women, provide clean water and sanitation, and all the other essential goals becomes relatively easier to achieve. And so if you force me to pick, I will go for goal eight, especially economic growth. That's where it starts, because if you have consistent and sustained economic growth, you're generating wealth. You will be able to increase income. You will, you will be able to improve on your technological capability, and then you'll have resources to invest in education, health, and, and other essential goals. So I would go for eight, then nine, of course, industry, innovation, and infrastructure. These critical goals, I would say. Thank you so much for highlighting those. I think, generally speaking, they get less attention than goal one to end poverty or maybe goal five on gender equality. So thank you for highlighting these critical middle goals that are so important to the LDCs. Tess, thank you so much for being with us. I feel like we have benefited from a master class uh, from kind of an emeritus professor of economic development, and you've really highlighted the importance of experience in the United Nations system. You've given us a wonderful overview of the growth of this Field and done a deep dive into some critical issues uh, relating to LDCs that our listeners may not have heard about. So thank you very much. We really appreciate your spending your time with us today. No, thank you very much. No, I should thank you for this opportunity and I hope it's useful and thank you. And I must say that from my work at ANCTAD, I've always appreciated the support that the CDF gives to LDCs. And then the fact I used to work with your organization in uh, the report that we produce at ANCTAD on LDCs. So thanks and also congratulations for you. Thank you so much. And of course, UNCTAD is the critical source of data on LDCs. And they also published the report that has the key statistic that everyone cites about the financing gap for LDCs and how much private sector funding will need to reach them. And thank you also to our audience for joining us on UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org. If you found this episode useful, please spread the word on Twitter, hashtag Capital Musings, or leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews help new listeners discover our podcast. So if you enjoyed listening, please leave a review. Thanks, and until next time.